The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 5 this evening. The word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Machlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. We'll be reading through verse 16 this evening. The word of our God. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord is Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Here endeth the new covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to the book of Ruth is this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. The book of Ruth is one of the most beautiful short stories that has ever been written. And every single word of it is absolutely true. Ruth is a love story. And yet it's not a love story about Naomi and Elimelech. And ultimately, it's not even a love story about Boaz and Ruth. Although we do get some wonderful glimpses of covenant love as we see these two faithful exceptions to their own generation. But ultimately, the book of Ruth is a love story between the living God and his people. Now, when we approach a story like this, it can be very helpful to simply use those journalistic diagnostic questions. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? We begin this evening with the question, when? In the days when the judges judged, or as the ESV puts it, in the days when the judges ruled, when was that, and why does it matter? Well, you know, at the beginning of your Bible, there are the five books of Moses. We call them the Torah or the Pentateuch, which just means five scrolls. 
And in the beginning of your Bible, in the Pentateuch, the Lord introduces us to the patriarchs, the promises he makes to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And then as we turn into Exodus, we have the great deliverance story as God establishes his people as a true nation in the land. And then in the rest of the Pentateuch, we have the laws and the stories that all go around that. Then we move to the book of Joshua, which tells us the story of the very first generation that goes into the promised land, all the way up until the death of Joshua himself. Then we come to a very long period of um, time in redemptive history. The book of Judges takes us all the way from the death of Joshua, all the way up to Saul becoming Israel's very first king. And what's distinguishing about these days is that they're evil. The people of God who have been called out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and delivered into their own land, they actually live according to their own judgment. In fact, the most distinctive saying in the entire book of Judges is this, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Sometimes we have to remind our fellow Americans that is not a compliment. We, We actually have come to think that that's what people should do. But actually what we're called to do is to live by what is right in God's eyes, by every word that comes forth from the mouth of our God. Nearly the entire book of Judges follows the same pattern. The people provoke the Lord with their sin. And then God sends a chastisement judgment upon them. He sends afflictions. He brings enemies against them. And at best, the people only partially repent, and many times they don't seem to repent at all. Yet as the Lord looks down upon his suffering people, he looks down upon them with compassion, and he raises up a judge, and that judge acts to deliver the people, at least in a region, at least for a time. But the cycle continues. Instead of seeing God's grace as a call upon them to to have genuine reformation of life, The people simply go on in their sin, and so once again the Lord sends judgment. Except the thing about this pattern is, is it doesn't just move along throughout the book. It keeps going down, with each spiral getting lower. By the time we come to the end of the book of Judges, we realize that the people of God have become hardly distinct from the Canaanites that God had sent them in to give them their land except there's actually something very significant. Unlike the Canaanites, they had had far greater privilege. They had had the word of God. They had experienced his dramatic miracles. They were covenant people to whom much is given, much is required, and therefore they deserved an even more severe judgment. It is important for us to grasp the wickedness of Israel At the time when the book of Ruth opens, see, Ruth takes place in the days when the judges judged. It's important for us to understand how wicked Israel is at this time, or otherwise we'll misunderstand what's going on. But we'll see the famine that's in the land uh, simply as a difficult set of circumstances, but that's the wrong way to read it. Now, it is true that we cannot draw direct lines between every single famine God sends in history with someone's specific sin. If you read through the book of uh, Genesis, there are a number of famines, 
And there's no indication at all that God sent those famines because of particular sins. But things have changed. When God brings his covenant people into the promised land, he says, if you're faithful to me, I will bless you, not only spiritually, but materially. That is, your women won't miscarry. Your crops will be fruitful. You will become wealthy, as it were. And in fact, if you do the opposite, you rebel against me, well, then I'm going to send enemies against you, and then I'm going to send famines. So when we read the opening lines of Ruth, in the days when the judge is judged, and we discover that there's a famine in the world, in the land, we ought not to be thinking, what a tough break for Elimelech and Naomi. What we ought to be thinking is how wicked Israel has behaved and how God, through this famine, is calling them to repent. That's the key thing for us to see at the beginning of this passage. We ought not to be thinking, wow, I feel so sorry for Elimelech and Naomi because circumstances just haven't gone their way. Let's look at the whole of verse 1 together. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. This leads us to our second question. Where? The man and his wife are from Bethlehem. Uh, the Hebrew of that just means house of bread. And perhaps we should see a bit of an irony here. In the house of bread, there is no bread because God has sent a famine into the land. Now, the book of Ruth takes us from a desperately low time in Israel to an exhilarating high. And both of these connect with the town of Bethlehem. We begin with there being a famine in the house of bread that is in Bethlehem, and we end with the genealogy of the man after God's own heart. In fact, we know that it goes much further than that. Although this town was unimpressive in itself, God had chosen it to be one of extraordinary significance. Not only will David come from Bethlehem, but through him, God will send the Messiah. As the Lord will prophet, promise through the prophet Micah, but you, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, even from everlasting. Now, when Elimelech and Naomi are in the process of leaving the promised land, they don't know about these promises. But we do, looking at it from this side of the cross. In fact, the location of Bethlehem will become quite important later in the story. But for now, the more important thing for us to consider is not where they are from, but where Naomi and Elimelech are headed to. They are going to Moab. Who is Moab? Uh, those of you who are well-versed in Genesis will know right away uh, that Moab is the offspring of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. 
Uh, his daughter had made him drunk and had sex with him in order to have children. I'll say more about that in just a moment because it's both interesting and helpful to compare Lot and Elimelech in terms of the choices that they make and in terms of the consequences they face as a result of their choices. For now, I, I simply want you to realize that Moab had the kind of origin story um, that let's just say most people would rather cover up, right? Um, uh, some commentators have kind of wittily put it this way. The story about Moab's origins was undoubtedly much more popular in the surrounding nations than it was in Moab itself. But Moab did not only have an embarrassing beginning, Moab was one of Israel's earliest and most persistent enemies. Even before Israel entered the Promised Land, the Moabites denied water and food to the Israelites, and then the Moabite women had seduced the men of Israel and led them to worship foreign gods. I go back and read the story of King Balak, who hired the prophet Balaam to curse Israel in Numbers 22, and read through the first few verses of Numbers chapter 25. So Balaam understood that the Lord had chosen Israel and was committed to blessing them. And he helped Balak to understand that the only way the Lord was going to curse this people at all is if this people turned away from the Lord into idolatry. And so he convinced the king that the way to get at God's people was to lure these people into idolatry and to do it through sex. That is, um, the seduction of Israel by the Moabite women was not just something that happened. It was the determined plan of a pagan king to lead God's people astray so that God would not bless them. Later, during the period of the judges, Moab formed an alliance with several other small nations to wage war against Israel. In fact, Moab had oppressed Israel for 18 long years. So Moab is a nation that started with incest between Lot and his oldest daughter, while Lot was drunk, a nation which was notorious for its sexual immorality, a nation that had led Israel into idolatry even before she entered the promised land, and it is a nation that had been a militant enemy of the people of God. And yet Elimelech, when he comes to a crossroads in his life, thinks to himself this, you know what the best plan is? I'm going to take my family out of the promised land, and we're going to Moab. What in the world was he thinking? Well, let's back up a bit and introduce Elimelech and his family. With verse 2, the crisis of the famine becomes personal. Look at verse 2 with me. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, Elimelech's name means, my God is king. But Elimelech seems to have forgotten that his God actually does rule over everything. He is actually the one who is in charge. 
In every life, it seems, there are certain defining moments, key crossroads along the way, and that's where Elimelech is when the famine hits his town. He is standing at a crossroad that will define the entire rest of his life. As Ian Duguid puts it, the first chapter of the book of Ruth is the story of choices made and choices seemingly thrust upon people about roads traveled and left untraveled. It is about the long-term consequences of the decisions that we make. As we all know, well, those of us who are a bit older, those of us who are a bit older all know that the choices that we make do not always lead to the destinations we desired in the first place. Often our choices lead to places that are neither anticipated nor desired. Elimelech is standing at a great crossroad in his life, and what does he do? He imitates Lot. That's the connection I want you to see. Now, I doubt that Elimelech would have thought about that for a moment. He would not have realized or even brought to mind that he was choosing to imitate Lot. And the scary thing is, we might not be aware that we are imitating Lot either, unless we stop and think about it. So the Lord is calling us this evening to do just that, to stop and think about what we're doing. Let me sketch just a few of the main points of Lot's story, and let's see what we can learn from them. Uh, Lot was Abraham's nephew, so it was actually an extraordinary privilege for him God chooses Abraham, Lot gets to go with him to the promised land and to experience all the blessings that the Lord was going to pour out upon Abraham and those who were in his camp. Lot had seen the Lord bless and protect Abraham, and he certainly should have known that Abraham was a prophet. In fact, Lot became rich by hanging out with Abraham, so rich that that actually created the crisis in his life where, where the People that were taking care of Lot's um, herds and the people taking care of Abraham's herds, they were butting heads because God had given them so much material wealth and they were struggling over it. And then Abraham does what in the ancient Near East is the most astonishing thing. Abraham tells Lot to pick whichever direction he wants to go. And he is Father Abraham. Lot is his nephew. But Abraham says, if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the north, I'll go to the south. Lot, you choose. What was Abraham doing? Abraham was walking by faith and not by sight. See, Abraham had the promise of God that God was going to bless him. And he lived on the basis of that promise. He didn't look out and say, I better get that land over there or God's promises aren't going to go come true. Abraham walked by faith and not by sight. What happens next is absolutely shocking. Everyone in the ancient Near East would have expected Lot to say, oh no, Father Abraham, you choose. But that's not what Lot does. And Lot does not walk by faith. He looks over at the plains that are near Sodom. He knew that Sodom was filled with evil people. 
It's actually made explicit. We know that at that point in history. It's not a surprise to him. But he looked at the fields and saw how fertile they were. And he said, you know, if I stay outside of Sodom, I can enjoy the wealth of Sodom without being corrupted by it. Well, Abraham walked by faith. Lot walked by sight. Later on, Lot would be captured in a great war between Sodom and other pagan nations. But even being rescued by Abraham from captivity did not convince Lot that he needed to leave Sodom. In fact, the next thing we see is Lot has moved from being in the environs of Sodom, in the the, the areas outside of Sodom, to having a home in Sodom. And in fact, he's calling the wicked Sodomites his brothers. Lot had set his heart on wealth and comfort, and these desires trumped Lot's desire to walk with the Lord. And the terrifying thing about all this is to turn to the New Testament and discover that Lot was a believer. Right? Lot did not, in fact, lose his salvation because of his sin. But beloved Lot wasted his life. When the angels come to rescue Lot from Sodom, before the Lord destroyed it, Lot believed them. But even so, he was reluctant to leave the city, the very place he knew God was about to destroy. And you'll recall the angels had to take his wife with one hand and him with another hand and his two daughters with their hands and lead them out of the city. Lot's sons-in-laws thought he was jesting when he told them that God was going to destroy the city. Quite obviously, he had not been telling his sons-in-laws about a holy God who judges sin, right? Lot had wasted his life. And as the angels essentially dragged them out of the city to safety, Lot's wife turned back and was turned into a pillar of salt. And Lot ended his days living in a cave with his two daughters who had made him drunk so that they could have children through their father. Lot came to a great crossroad in his life. He chose to walk by sight and not by faith, and he ended up losing everything. He ended up losing everything. In some ways, the story is like the first half of the parable of the prodigal son, except what we never actually see in the text of Genesis is Lot being turned back to Abraham or to his God. We, we must trust that since he was a believer, to some degree, God must have led him to repentance. But outwardly, we never see it. Now we come to Elimelech, and we find him doing the very same thing. What was Elimelech thinking? For one thing, he thought that his plans were temporary. Please pay attention to that, because I think this is the, the key hinge on which we deceive ourselves. Elimelech thought that his plans were temporary. Look at verse 1 again with me. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. See, that word sojourn suggests temporary. We're going to travel through here for a bit, 
And then we're going to move on, presumably coming back into the promised land. Elimelech was not planning on leaving Bethlehem permanently. This was just a temporary step until times were better and until Elimelech could get his family back on better footing financially. Beloved, surely that is what Elimelech told himself. If you had asked Elimelech how long he was going to be gone as he headed out of Bethlehem, he would not have shouted back to you, who knows, I might be gone forever. He would have said, just for a season, perhaps we'll be back by next harvest. Right? That's what he's thinking. This is a temporary detour from following God's plan until life would get better for him. Elimelech would not have said, I may never come back. In fact, I'm planning on dying in Moab, having my sons marry Moabite women, and then having my sons die in Moab as well, outside the promised land, just like me. He would have said, I'll be back soon. Maybe the next harvest. Of course, when Lot chose to pitch his tents near Sodom, he wasn't planning on living out his golden years as a broken man in a cave either. But that be a warning to us. We may try to minimize our own unfaithfulness by telling ourselves that our unfaithfulness is just temporary until our circumstances get better. Yet as we have already observed, Frequently, our choices take us in directions that we neither anticipate nor desire. This is particularly a challenge. It's been a challenge all throughout church history. But I want to suggest this is a particular challenge for us as Americans. Because as Americans, we are prone to self-help religion. If there's a problem, I can't simply trust God. I need to do something to fix it. And that, that's not always wrong. What well, is always wrong not to just trust God, but it's not always wrong to take action. But the danger is to think that we can make the pragmatic choice of alleviating the suffering that comes with following God closely and then simply get back on track a little bit later. Lot and Elimelech both warn us that that's simply not the case. The temptation is to presume that we can compromise our walk with God in the present, perhaps for just a few weeks or perhaps just for a few years, and then once we have taken care of whatever it is that we are concerned about, well then, we will get back on track and zealously follow the Lord. Or at least that's the lie that we tell ourselves. Right? But it is a lie. And so... We consider going to a college or taking a job in a town with no good church for us to worship at. Hey, it's only for four years, right? Or maybe three or four years until we, you know, we, we fill up our 401k a bit and then we can move to another place. Or we organize our lives around entertainment and getting rich rather than worship, service, and fellowship with God's people only to wake up one day and discover that our children are married to pagans or that we are dying without actually ever having zealously lived for the sake of the kingdom of God. 
Beloved, the danger for us here in this room this evening is not that we will seek to follow God and because we're not wise enough, somehow fail. I look out in this room of people who are remarkably gifted. And by the mere fact that you're living in America in the 21st century, you are remarkably privileged. The danger for us is not that we will seek to follow God and somehow fail. The danger for us is that we will succeed at things that really don't matter. God is saying to us, don't waste your life. The plain truth is that when we come to a crossroad in life and choose compromise or crass disobedience, we don't know where those choices will lead us, but we do know that we're headed in the wrong direction. Furthermore, every compromise we make seems to give birth to another. Look at verse 2 with me. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. See, when Elimelech headed out to Moab, he planned it on sojourning. But this language here of remaining there is they're starting to make it their new home. They're settling there. Their first compromise led to the next one. When Elimelech left Bethlehem, he intended to sojourn in the fields of Moab and then to return home. But by the end of verse 2, they had settled down in Moab. That is what remain there means. And this always happens in one way or another until we turn back to God by repenting. We're not going to cleverly work our way out of unfaithfulness. The only result we can have, the only plan we can have that will bring us back to true blessing is to acknowledge we were wrong and to turn back to our Lord for mercy and grace. Moab for Elimelech, for Naomi and their children, had moved from being a place of temporary relief to becoming more like a new home. And then Elimelech dies outside the promised land. And you know, his young sons, at some point, they're going to want to get married. So they take to themselves Moabite wives, something that was expressly forbidden in the law of God. By the way, that's still true today. We're not talking about ethnicity here. That is not the issue. It is about marrying outside the faith. Finally, Maclon and Killian also die. We obviously can feel the tragedy that this is for Naomi, but there's something in their deaths that we could easily miss in the 21st century in America, which every ancient Jew would have picked up like that. They die without children. That means Elimelech's name is going to be erased from Israel's history. Right? They're, they're not going to carry on that, that, that family involvement in the people of Israel until the Lord comes again. Elimelech and his sons, their names will ultimately end up being erased from the people of God. Now, we're going to look at this a little more closely later in the book. But it's important for us to realize at the outset that having your name erased from the people of God at this time is considered one of the greatest judgments that can befall you as a person in Israel. Note that Elimelech, like Lot, 
had set his heart on comfort and wealth and ended up with neither. When Elimelech held his baby boys in his hands, he was not thinking, I hope they grow up to marry Moabite women and die outside the promised land. He never imagined that his family line would be cut off from the people of God. Like Elimelech, we too don't know where our actions are going to lead us. We do not know where walking by sight instead of by faith will lead us. All we can know in advance is if we're walking by sight rather than by faith, we are walking in the wrong direction. May the Lord give us the grace to walk by faith instead. Yet if all we gain from Ruth is this moral lesson, then this would be one of the most pitiful love stories that has ever been written. Naomi has been crushed with grief, bereft of both her husband and her two sons. Naomi is, in her own person, a representative, a picture of Israel at this time. Self-willed, sinful, walking away from the Lord, suffering the Lord's chastisement, and yet still deeply loved by her God. See, Yahweh is emptying Naomi of worldly hope so that he could fill her with himself and with his own profound blessings. Up to this point in the book, um, Ruth has been a fairly dismal story. Um, And so I want to peek ahead just a little bit to verse 6 so that I don't leave you with all darkness tonight. This book is going somewhere. The downward spiral of sin deserved God's judgment, but Yahweh in his mercy was about to shower grace upon his rebellious people. Look at verse 6 with me. Verse 6. Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, when we consider the stiff-necked Israelites and their rebellion against God, uh, and then we hear that God is going to visit them, we might naturally think God is going to visit them to bring judgment. But God, being rich in mercy, visits his rebellious people And he gives them food. More than food, the Lord was working through the sinful choices of Elimelech to bring a pagan Moabite woman to saving faith. And Ruth will become one of the most remarkable examples of covenant faithfulness in the history of the people of God. And through Ruth, the Lord would bring about the restoration of his people Through Ruth, Elimelech's family name would be restored and maintained among the people of God. Through Ruth, the refrain that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes would be silenced because through Ruth would would come the king who was the man after God's own heart. And through Ruth, God would send the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the true bread that comes down from heaven, who would give his life for the life of the world. 
As Naomi set her face to return to Bethlehem, these truths of what the Lord was doing were utterly beyond what any human being could see, or I would dare say even imagine. But in ways that they could not see, the Lord was also preparing for their deliverance. As William Cowper so beautifully put it, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform, he plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. All that Naomi could see was that she had left Bethlehem with a husband and two sons, and she was returning as a widow with both of her sons dead. Naomi was bitter of spirit. But on this side of the cross, we can see more. We can see that the Lord was using the sinful choices of Israel in general, and Elimelech in particular, as part of his plan to bring about the salvation of the world. So let us learn to walk by faith and not by sight. May Lot and Elimelech serve as clear warnings to us against wasting our lives. But beloved, let us remember that even our wicked choices will not have the last word. For God's grace in Christ Jesus is far greater than our sin. Ruth, after all, is a love story. And the fact that we are so unworthy of God's love just makes clear how amazing his love for us truly is. Over the coming weeks, this remarkable story will unfold for us in vivid color. But verse 6 already points us in a most hopeful direction. This love story will have a decidedly happy ending. Praise be to God. Amen.